As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maar at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am very excited to say that today we are recording in the South London studio of the monumental painter, brilliant sculptor, national treasure and all-round art sensation, Maggie Hambling. Known for her expressive portraits, sublime depictions of landscapes and seascapes, smaller and public sculptures, Maggie is always one to give her viewer an immediate reaction of sorts, whether that be physical, emotional, full of sensation or at times controversial. Born in 1945, Maggie grew up in rural Suffolk with her two older siblings before going on to study locally at the East Anglian School of Painting and Drawing under Cedric Morris and Lett Haynes. (laughs) It's my bird clock. Does a different bird call for every hour. (laughs) Very nice. Followed by Camberwell and the Slade School of Art. In 1980, she became the first artist in residence at London's National Gallery and has gone on to become one of the most celebrated and highly acclaimed living artists around today, who is in the collection of the British Museum, Tate, v and more, and who even has a sculpture on a beach in Suffolk. Women seem to be at the heart of Maggie's work, having produced one of my favourite works ever to exist, her portrait of the great chemist Dorothy Hodgkin that hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, featuring Hodgkin sitting at a desk with four hands complexly engaged in multiple tasks, and her upcoming statue of the great philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, which will emblazon Mary's timeless words, I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. Maggie Hambling, welcome to the podcast today. How are you doing? Fine. (laughs) So I mentioned earlier that sense of reaction that your work gives. To me, when I stand in front of your seascapes, 
I am both kind of all consumed and overwhelmed. And when I look at your portraits, I feel completely swept up in that person's world. How do you want people to kind of react to your works when they're in front of it? It's completely up to them. I mean, one is alone in a, in a studio making a piece of work and then it goes out into the world and I'm into the thrills and spills of the next piece of work. And I don't ever say or even suggest how people might respond to my work. I mean, some people love it, some people hate it, and uh, lots of people couldn't <laughs> care less. You know, it's one thing to be in a room making it, and then it goes out of the world and it has to have a life of its own. I'm not in charge of that. And people discovering animals and faces and figures and things in the sea paintings, that's fine by me. They don't go there consciously. They just happen because when you're really painting, you haven't a clue what's going on. And what is it like in the middle of that painting when you don't have a clue what's going on? Well, you lose all sense of time. I mean, I agree with Brancusi, who said that it wasn't difficult to make a work of art. The difficulty lay in being the right state to do it. And for me, it's a combination of total concentration and totally not giving a damn. And it's quite a difficult state to achieve. And so when it's, a painting is painting itself or a sculpture is, is taken off and is making itself, I don't feel at all in charge. I mean, I, I try to be a channel for the truth of the subject to come through me into the drawing, into the painting, into the sculpture. I mean, the art teacher at school said... The artist doesn't choose the subject. The subject chooses the artist. That is very important. And from that point on, the subject has to be in charge of the artist, in my view. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the portrait of Dorothy Hodgkin. Well, I went to meet her two or three months before making the painting. And she was enchanting and said, well, I'll do whatever you want if you'd like me to see it. And then we went to her workroom where she worked every day. And she sat at her desk where she worked every day, already in her 70s. And I said, no, 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 I'd really like to do it here. So I had the easel in a sort of dark corner and she was beside the window with the light flooding in. And it was deep winter, there was snow outside. Because that woman was about her work. It would have yeah. been quite irrelevant to paint her sitting in a chair like anyone else. I mean, she was a very active person. And her hands, you mm. know, these rather famous hands drawn by Henry Moore, yeah. arthritic since, since her 20s, you know, were, were moving around like little animals, you know, with all these figures and things and she was working on. And the big difficulty or the big challenge of that painting was her model of insulin, which is in the foreground of the painting. Because I thought if I get one of these bloody little beads in the wrong place, you know, it'll be wrong for <laughs> insulin. It'll be wrong, <laughs> wrong. But she's the person closest that I met to being a sort of walking, living saint. I mean, she, there she was in her 70s going on with her work every day. She was aware of, of everything that was happening in the house, who was coming, was going, what was coming out in the garden. And I was, stayed there for a week to make that painting. And I think it was a Wednesday evening of that week. It was the end of the day. She was reading a newspaper on a sofa, and I was on the sofa the other side of the room making a few drawings in the sketchbook. And this local journalist came to interview her. And a young journalist was asking 
Dorothy questions of such a banal and embarrassing kind. You know, I was squirming away on my sofa. <laughs> but Dorothy treated her with such patience, with such charm, and the rest of it. Uh, uh, I mean, and then on the Thursday evening, she was president of Pugwash, which is Scientists for Peace. And so she was telephoned by Pugwash asking her to go to Japan the following week, you know, just to sort of drop everything and go off to Japan for Pugwash. And she said, yes, yes, I happened to overhear the conversation. She said, yes, if you need me, I'll be there. I mean, a saint, a living, walking saint. But I mean, I have met extraordinary people who I've painted, yeah. But it's, so the truth of her and her work is what I was trying to be a channel to get into that painting. Well, I think you definitely see it. It's one of my favourite paintings of all time. And so when you are painting, do you think you were always trying to set out to make something specific or how does the subject kind of appear in your paintings? When one is really painting, one has nothing to do with it. The painting is painting itself. I mean, what matters is the subject. I paint what demands me to paint it um, in life. I mean, it could be like the painting Gulf Women Prepare for War that's in Cambridge you know, it was a very shocking photograph, a black and white photograph I saw in the newspaper. You know, these women, it was done in the mid-80s. And so these women in what seemed to me then, like black biblical clothing, you know, practicing with these rocket launchers in the middle of the desert, it was a very shocking image. And so mm. that's why I made the painting. And then if somebody very close to me dies, you know, I... My friend George Melly always said I go down in art history as Maggie Coffin handling because, <laughs> because of drawing people in their coffins and going on painting them after they're dead, you know. I mean, I went on painting George Melly for a couple of years after he died. And so this studio was full of portraits of George painted with as much life as I could. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Although he was dead. And then I remember the lorry came to pick them all up to go to the show at the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. And I came into this studio. It was bare, not a sign of George anywhere. And I said to myself, well, you've got to face it, Maggie. George is actually dead, <laughs> you know. But while I was painting him, he was still alive. Because if you're very close to somebody, and he was one of my very best friends, you know, they don't die inside you, do they? No. I mean, they go on being alive. And, it's, and that's where it's very lucky. In my, I've always felt to be an artist, to sort of have this positive way of grieving. Do you know what I mean? You're not, of course, you're cut up, you're sad, you're depths of depression about somebody dying. But it does help. You know, Henry Moore said the whole thing was therapy. I agree with him. He said this positive way of grieving. Or if you, you know, you could write an, if you wrote operas, you can write, an, you write a poem. Yeah. Whatever, whatever kind of artist you are. As W.H. Auden said, you know, it's uh, making artists like breaking bread with the dead. Well, it's a very clear example to go on painting someone after they've died. Yeah. Keep them alive in you. So you were born in 1945 and you grew up in rural Suffolk with siblings. I know that your brother wasn't best pleased when you were born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, my mother went to Sudbury where Gainsborough was born and lived um, to have me in the hospital there and then I grew up in Hadley which is a country town and I know that uh, my brother came into the room and she felt she had to apologise <laughs> that I wasn't a boy because he definitely wanted a brother so he sort of rather ignored the fact that I happened to be a girl and 
you know, taught me manly things like carpentry and uh, <laughs> how to wring a chicken's neck. It's all good skills. <laughs> much more useful, much more I useful. I know, what would you be teaching if you were a girl? It's boring. Well, I was once given a doll and it went straight down to the woodshed and we cut its head off, so I <laughs> didn't have any more dolls. <laughs> and when you were younger, do you think art was something that you were always interested in or was it until you were a bit older that you kind of discovered it? Art came into my life when Oscar Wilde's children's stories were read to us at my first school. I was about six or seven, I suppose. And this voice from another place, I mean, somewhere so unlike the rest of life, you know, this place of the imagination, this exotic language, this place of the imagination that those stories took me into, that's really when it started. And then and then, uh, a couple of years later, Uncle Tom's Cabin was being read to us at school. And the fashion was in those old arithmetic books full of squares. You know, if you had a gold crown, you're absolutely it. You know, you've got the most, most extraordinary colours of crowns you possibly could. And, and as the story was being read, you'd sort of fill in the squares. It was all very decorative with these exotic crowns. And But in response to that book, which is largely about slavery and slaves being beaten, I tried to draw the slaves being beaten rather than make pretty patterns in the arithmetic book. So, so it was Oscar Wilde and then drawing really mm. started it all. And then my next school, the very surprising business of coming top in the art exam when I was 14 and I'd done nothing but flick paint at people and draw attention to myself because I was <laughs> deeply in love with the biology mistress who was invigilating the exam. And I, I literally, I saw the clock, it was 20 past three, yeah. and at half past three I got a hand in a painting, so I did one. And when the results came out, about two or three weeks later, I was top of arts. I thought, I'm going to look, <laughs> look into this, you know, you don't have to try and you're good at it, this is interesting. You see, I failed to get into Ipswich High School where my sister had gone before me. And so I was sent to what I always referred to as the Dunces School, a school called Amberfield. But there, you see, as luck would have it, and my mother always said it was fate, the art teacher was a real live practicing artist who had exhibitions and things. And so without her, we wouldn't be sitting here today. And so I remember sitting up till two o'clock in the morning and trying to paint the night sky out of my bedroom window. And I took the paintings into school the next day. And they were sort of all laid out. And she came into the room, and I was sort of standing up in the corner on the point of tears. And she came up to me and said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I was up till two o'clock this morning trying to paint the night sky, and everybody's laughing at these paintings. And she said, look, it's got to be water off a duck's back. You know, whatever anyone says about your work, it's, you've got to toughen up. It's of no importance when in, what anybody else says. Yeah. That was a marvellous thing. And she also was the one, as I said earlier, said the subject chooses the artist, not vice versa. Gosh, what an amazing person to be exposed to so early on. Then after all that, I took my first two oil paintings to show Cedric Morris and Lett Haynes, who ran the art school on the edge of Hadley, where I grew up. Uh, and so that's when Lett, Lett Haynes became my mentor, and I worked with him in the kitchen. And it was in the kitchen there that he said, the most important thing that anyone's ever said, which is if you're going to be an artist, you must make your work your best friend, as you can go to it. Whatever you're feeling, you're feeling 
shy, you're feeling joyous, you're yeah. feeling bored, you're feeling tired, you're feeling randy, whatever you're feeling, go to your work and have a conversation with it and say, and that's how I live my life. And he also said, there's no point in anyone thinking they can be an artist without imagination. Yeah. So there's two very important things were said to me. And then I actually went to Ipswich Art School for two years and then Camberwell for three years and stayed for two years in the glorious days of grants before Mrs. Thatcher removed such things. <laughs> uh, she, she really did want to turn every fine art department into a commercial art setup. You know? Really? Yeah. God. I was an art student in London in the 60s, long before the, yeah. the, the frightful 90s of Mrs. Thatcher. So what were you doing in, in art school? What, you, what were you experimenting with? Well, I was very good at Ipswich. There was a different discipline each day of the week. You know, one day life drawing, one day pottery, one day sculpture, one day drawing plants or something. A different thing every day of the week, which was very, very good. And then Camberwell, well, we were given huge freedom. I worked consistently throughout the three years in the life room, working from the life. And I made experiments into op art, into pop art, into abstract expressionism, everything. <laughs> Tried everything, you know, yeah. tried everything. And then by the Slade, I gave up painting altogether. And Why was that? Because I didn't think all these big abstract paintings going on at the top of the Slade had anything to do with the man in the street. And so I suppose I was always quite political or something, although I'm never quite sure what that word means. Uh, and two boys and I made, spent the rest of the two years at the Slade making this audio-visual environment. Okay. Called a space of five times. It was best to get, we wanted to get through to the man in the street. And they were very civilised at the Slade because they'd never heard of a tape recorder. Anyway. <laughs> but they, you know, they found us tape recorders and cameras and sound equipment and all that sort of stuff. So we made that environment which ironically ended up in an art gallery <laughs> <laughs> anyway anyway and then i uh, made uh, some street art and uh, conceptual art i won a prize for conceptual art yes it's 1972 or something like that but i i felt like the impresario of my ideas and not the executor you see, because I always needed somebody who knew more about photography than me, somebody who knew more about sound, all these technical things, yeah. you know. So I realised that the only way to make the whole piece of work myself was to actually paint a picture. So I returned to painting, and, and I, rather than trying to get through to the man in the street... I tried to paint the man on the street. I would go to uh, a pub no longer there, Battersea Park Road, called The Cricketers, and I found somebody move me, you know, solitary drinkers, you know, and I would study the person for about an hour, not make any drawings or just anything. Just look. Just look, train the visual memory and come back, go back to the studio and make the painting from memory. Did the people ever say anything that you staring at them for an hour longer? <laughs> <laughs> I think they thought I was a bit odd. Or I, I, I mean, I would make it half a bit and last for the whole hour while I looked at the person, you know. And then in 1980, you were the first artist in residence at the National Gallery. What was that experience like? Well, it was a big thing, which is rather surprising, really. I mean, in 1980, people kind of surprised at the idea of a, a living artist working 
somewhere that was full of the work of dead artists, you see. it Was uh, Was it a point when they weren't doing contemporary exhibitions or anything? No, no, none of that then. It was um, a big thing. I mean, it was sort of on news night and all that. Oh, wow. I mean, God. it was a big thing. I mean, it seems to be quite an obvious <laughs> thing to do, but no. Anyway, I remember being asked at the interview because there were about three or four artists were went for an interview for this thing. And I remember the director then, Michael Levy, saying, well, you've seen the studio. So I said, yes. And he said, do you think you'll be able to work in it? And I said, well, I said, it'll be very interesting to work entirely by artificial light. And he turned to somebody who was at the National Gallery then called Alistair Smith. And he said, oh, aren't there any windows? And he said, no. I mean, it's extraordinary <laughs> that the National Gallery, it didn't occur to them that an artist might like a bit of light. You know? yeah. <laughs> and never mind, never mind. There were lots of Either spotlights. <laughs> and as I smoked, of course, they were a bit worried that I might set fire to the place. And so the whole studio was sort of lined with aluminium foils. So I felt a bit like a ready meal. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But I did not set fire to the National Gallery, so that was a good thing. <laughs> and I had all the time, you know, I got there very early in the morning and I had all this time making studies from some of the paintings and doing... Could you be alone uh, with the paintings? Yes, absolutely. And... Then once a week on a Wednesday afternoon, I received the public at four o'clock. So I told them they could leave their handbags or whatever in my studio, and then I took them down into the collection and we visited four or five pictures that I've, that I've loved and felt I could say one or two things about. And then we go back up into the studio and all my works are underwater, and they could ask me questions. And one question I've never been able to answer to this day. Somebody asked me, how I knew what size to do a painting. I still can't answer that. I still don't really know why some are big and why some are tiny. I don't know the answer to that. And it was a great mixture of people from the cognoscenti of the art world to sort of tramps who'd come in from the rain to people who didn't understand English. I mean, this great variety Talk of Talk about person, going to the man of the street. <laughs> uh, came in and there was this Dutch woman who always sat at the back and said, do you see auras? Do you see auras? <laughs> so I said, no. She was back the following way and said, do you see auras? And I'd say, no. This went on for practically a half, all the time. <laughs> I was there. I mean, so it was an experiment for three months. It was all regarded as a great success. So I stayed uh, six months, yes. I went uh, autumn 82 till Easter 81. They wanted me to stay longer, but I don't think it's a good idea for artists to become part of a sort of uh, an institution, Yeah, you know, rattling around in a great big chocolate box or something. So six months was enough. Enough. But it was terrific. I, I mean, I learned a lot about picture space, painting space, space in paintings from the studies I made. And also shadows, because there was a warder posed for me for a number of portraits in my studio, one of the warders, and because of all the artificial lights, you know, these spotlights and these extraordinary shadows happened as he sat. So I learned a great deal. Yeah. And then soon after that, you went to see Max Wall. It was during, I was still yeah. at the National Gallery, and he was playing his one-man show at the Garrick Theatre, you know, just behind yeah. the National Gallery. And I went twice, and then I wrote to him on 
impressive National Gallery writing paper saying <laughs> if, if he had time, how much I would love to love him to sit for me. And uh, he wrote back on his tiny little writing paper saying, it's highly complimentary you'd like to paint little me. I wonder what colour. And so <laughs> I sort of finished at the National Gallery on Maundy Thursday in the Easter of 81 and went to collect him on Good Friday. So I went straight from the National Gallery into beginning to paint Max Wall. And was that when you kind of first got to know him? Yeah. What was it like kind of painting him at first compared to after the kind of 15 paintings and 23 studies that you ended up doing after two years? Did it change over time? Uh, like all the great clowns, great comedians, I mean, a complete depressive. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It was one of the most miserable people I've ever met. But, I mean, it, you know, you can't be that funny without being that sad. You know, obviously Hancock, uh, uh, Buster Keaton, uh, Tommy Cooper. I mean, they they all sort of died of drink, you know. With the, yeah. Of course. It's like life and death and laughter and crying. I mean, it's all so close. What do you think kind of draws you to painting people like that or like, you know, painting death, I guess? That's a part of life, Ducky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like the thing with the sea. I mean, when I was a toddler, I would walk into the sea and talk to it. Talk, talk, talk. God knows what I said to it. And I'd, <laughs> you know, talk, talk, talk. Like, like the sea is my friend. I was talking to it. And now when I go to the sea... You know, I try to listen, listen. And uh, I identify with the beach, the shingle, which is in Suffolk, in East Anglia generally, is being eroded, you know? Yeah. So the sea is like time and uh, the erosion. So I try to listen to it instead of talk to it. What does it say to you? We're very small. <laughs> <laughs> the, sea is, the sea is very big. And uh, I mean, the, the, the bit of the beach at Alborough where scallop, sculpture for Benjamin Britten is, that case changes the whole time with erosion. I mean, when scallop was first installed, it was actually much closer to the sea than it is now. So it changes the whole time. But like time erodes one's life, the sea is eroding the coast. Very aware of all that. When were you first kind of interested in painting the sea? Because obviously this is something that you grew up with. It was during the period between having made the maquette for Scollop, the model, and make, beginning to make the real piece of sculpture. There was a, a, a gap where we had to start trying to get the money together because rather unusually for a public sculpture, it wasn't commissioned, you know. Uh, I had to find the money. And I was very much helped by uh, someone called Simon Loftus, who was the chairman of Adnam's Brewery at Southworld then. He came and saw the maquette and said he would help me. And we were writing off to people. And so there was this pause between making the maquette and beginning to make the real sculpture. And during that pause, it was November the 30th, 2002. It's a Sunday. And I'd driven to the sea in the morning and there was a huge storm raging, you know, in the sky and in the sea and the shingles being tossed in the air. It was fantastically exciting. I got back to the studio. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon and the storm was still raging in all the countryside around me, around the studio. And, and I was painting 
a little portrait from memory of a London tramp on a canvas 12 inches by 10, vertical. And I thought, what the hell are you doing painting this portrait from memory of this tramp when what is inside you, in other words, me, was the excitement of that storm and the sea that morning. So I just continued the painting of the portrait of the tramp and it became the first little sea painting. And I went on painting these little paintings of the sea, all vertical, like that first yeah. one. It's more usual, of course, to paint the sea horizontally. Always perverse, you see. But anyway, there, that became the Albra Festival exhibition, 2003. And 200 quid from each sale went to the sculpture fund. So I was sort of like doing the work twice over, really. And But I made about 25 grand for the funds. That was good. Because, you know, you don't get any money really much yourself from sculpture because it's just so expensive to make mm. and involves, obviously, other people. So just to come back to portraiture, I've read that you've said a painting is like a love affair. What's it like to paint the subject in front of you and how do you even choose who to paint? You know, I, I'm quite particular who I agree to paint, you know. I yeah. refuse to paint Mrs Thatcher, for instance. Is that the only person? Well, I have been one or two others. Because I have to feel, you know, it is like a love affair in that it's a very intimate thing. And at the end of it, you hope there's a decent painting and not a broken heart. So in that way, it is like a love affair and it is a very intimate thing. And so I wouldn't ever take on to paint somebody who had no kind of fellow feeling, understanding, rapport with. It would be pointless. Because, mm. uh, I mean, above all, any work of art has to be a work of love. Yeah. Do you find it different creating sculptures or paintings or anything of men and women as well? Or do you think it's just the same? Same. It's all a problem. You know, <laughs> if I were painting, no, I don't paint bits of cheese, but I mean, <laughs> painting my mother dead or painting a bit of cheese, in the end, there's no difference, you know. It's either going to be a good painting or a bad painting. And I do destroy quite a lot of work. How do you know if it's a good painting? Oh, I don't know, really. <laughs> I don't know. Andy Warhol was asked the traditional question, how do you know when a painting's finished? Because I, as I'm sure you know, you can go on with an oil painting forever, yeah. unlike a watercolour. So. so when Andy Warhol, I saw him interviewed, and he said, how do you know when a work is finished? And he just said, when it's sold. <laughs> which is the best answer <laughs> nothing to do with the money because it's out it's gone yeah. gone you can't fiddle with it because when something finally is actually you feel is sort of feeling rather good you know the great temptation can be to sort of tickle around with it or tidy it up or and then you kill it you know so that moment of deciding when the thing is finished is actually very tricky mm. But when it's sold, it's a good answer. But I guess I'm also really interested to know if there's much difference when painting people you know and have a strong relationship with versus those from memory or who you don't know. So, for example, when you're painting Max Wall or when you're painting Stephen Fry or people who you knew, compared to the tramp in the street who turned into a an ocean, that, that kind of well, difference... Well, I mean, paintings can come from the imagination... They can come from memory. They can come from working with the, from life with the person in the studio. I mean, they can come from all over the place. There's no rule. Mm. But, I mean, in the case of George, I had painted him 
you know, it's my portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. I mean, I'd painted George from the life before making all those paintings after he died. Uh, Stephen, luckily, is still with us and for many more years. <laughs> I mean, they can come from anywhere. It's just when they demand some response, when things happen in life that demand some sort of response. So it could come from a photograph in a newspaper, it could come from a, a dream, it could come from wherever they come from. It's very mysterious. Yeah. Okay. As this is the Great Women Artists podcast, <laughs> if there was a female artist from history who you would want to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? Got to be female, huh? Doesn't have to be, but it's nice. <laughs> Rembrandt! <laughs> what would you say to Rembrandt? Well done. <laughs> no, secretly, I mean, I have a nickname for him, so which brings him more into our mortal sphere. I call him Ronnie Rembrandt, you know, as if he's a friend, you know. Very nice. Thank you very much, Maggie. Thank you all so much for listening to the 11th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the incredible and very brilliant British painter Maggie Hambling. It was so much fun to meet Maggie and visit her in her South London studio and discuss her seriously amazing and extensive five decade and counting career. She is such a staple of the British art scene and it was such an honour to have her on. This podcast was recorded by the amazing Joel Price and sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these podcasts so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review and of course rate and subscribe as it helps others find us. And if you have any comments or want to get in touch, please reach us at thegreatwomanartist at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening to The Great Woman Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions such as the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £70 per year and for those under 30, it's just £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.